When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. E alae kahikiku, e alae kahikimo, e alae kuailan. Lopaka, thank you so much for joining me on Somewhere in the Skies. Oh, no problem. It's an honor because I've I've seen it advertised, posted all over the place, so this is very cool. Oh, thank you. Well, it's cool to be here, man. I mean, this has been my temporary home for about five months now. So I have to thank you, first and foremost, for having me here. But it's uh, it's been an incredible experience. I've been here a few times now, but having the luxury of time on my side, I finally was able to just ingrain myself into um, everything here. It's such a cultural, supernatural melting pot, I guess is mm-hmm. a good way I'd put it, of different cultures and beliefs and uh mythologies and folklore coming together which i think is unlike anywhere else at least here in the united states um so i guess let's kind of start from the beginning i'd love to hear the origin story of how you came to be the master storyteller that i know you as uh amongst many other things but how did your journey start with ghost storytelling um with your mentor and everything in between give us the uh yeah Give us the story. Uh, yikes. <laughs> you know, really, it started when I was about six or seven years old. Um, I was having some health problems, and I was adopted into this uh, this Portuguese family. And so the deal was, after the adoption, that my biological mother would not have anything to do with me. Like, she'd stay out of everything. Mm-hmm. But about at uh, six or seven, when I started to go use the bathroom to do number one, uh, there was blood blood was coming out and so it turns out I had to be hospitalized so they could clean my kidneys out and in the process of that they had to contact my my biological mother for the medical records and I vaguely remember um, being in the hospital and and seeing her coming toward me in like this Chinese uh, top that the the women wore even though she was Hawaiian I remember crying because I didn't know who that was and my adopted parents telling me that you know this is your real mom I'm like ah and, um, yeah, I could, even at that age, I could see it, it hurt her pretty bad, you know, cause she, she cried and she left and then it kind of went away into a bit of a remission. And then when it came back, it was really bad. So I think I spent at least four or five months in the hospital. And so <clears throat> I made friends with this kid, his name was Scotty Boyd and he was well known back then. He was on this, uh, bank commercial and they filmed him sitting on a fence at a ranch on the Big Island, and his father was playing the ukulele, and he was, Scotty was singing this uh, Hawaiian song. And so everybody knew who he was, so I was surprised to see him in the hospital. And I didn't know why he was there. And so I remember the one thing he'd always do is he'd always wake up before me, and he'd say, friend, friend, wake up, let's go. And so he never knew my name, he just called me friend, and so we always went to play. And this was for a while, and then one evening after dinner, I'm laying in my bed, 
and I see the doctor come into our ward at the Children's Hospital along with his parents and a couple of other family members. And I remember the mother looking at me like with this death stare and she closes the curtain like this. And I hear the doctor saying something to them and then I hear crying and moaning and wailing. And, you know, so I'm like, oh, wow, what the whole, you know, what's going on? And pretty soon they all leave, the doctor, uh, Scotty's parents, and the curtain's still closed. But the way the ward was lit, I could see Scotty's silhouette, like, you know, just lying on the bed like this. And I see him sit up, and I see him kick his legs over to the bed this way. And then he comes around uh, to the curtain on my side, and I see his little, you know, part of his shadow, like, from up to here. He's like, friend friend hey let's go play friend let's go let's go play it's like okay so i kick my legs over this way to get off the bed and every day while i was there my adopted father's mom came to visit me every day but usually she came during the day but this was strange because it was in the evening as i'm trying to get off the bed i suddenly hear her voice from behind me she says don't get off that bed i turned around i said why you know that's my friend i'm gonna go play she says no you stay on that bed don't get off. I said, why, Grandma? She said, didn't you pay attention to what was going on? That boy died. He just died. That's his ghost. If your feet get off this bed and it touches the floor and you go play with him, you'll never come back. You stay on that bed. And no matter what you hear, you don't do it. And so for a couple of more minutes, you know, I can see a shadow and I can hear him saying, friend, friend, come on, what's wrong? Let's go play. And the whole time I'm laying, laying there like this and I'm looking at my grandma Lucy and she's going just like that. And then it stopped. Uh, a short time later, this 11-year-old kid who was in our, our ward, somehow he went downstairs and he got a, a bottle of Coca-Cola. And so this was in the early 70s. Late 60s, early 70s. But that's, I always joke about it, but that's when Coke really was the real thing. Mm-hmm. And so a bunch of us snuck down the stairway and we were all taking sips of Coke and it was bad for me because of my kidney condition. And I got sick. I remember throwing up. I remember having to be um, tied to the bed so they could do the intravenous thing. And then from what I was told, they had to do an operation. And so I overhear the doctor um, and the nurse talking to my, my adoptive parents. I guess I'm coming out of it. And I overhear them say, you know, we, we lost him for a couple of seconds there. You know, but, uh, you know, he came back. But what I remember of the experience is uh, lying on the operating table in this dark room, and we're the only spotlight. And just outside the perimeter of the spotlight, I can hear three people arguing. I can hear my grandmother, I can hear Scotty Boyd, and I can hear the voice of this, this woman. And the woman has to do with the story that Grandma Lucy told me one day about uh, when she was a teenage girl living in Wainaku on the Big Island, and she had a crush on this this guy named Philip. And so a bunch of them were, like, walking through this riverbed. It was dry, and the river the river is famous for uh, drownings because uh, when the waters are running, it's torrential. It's really bad. And everybody knows that in that river, when um, the greenery, the foliage around the river is a greenish-yellow color, and the water is still, and it sort of has that same sheen of that same color. They say that the the Mo'uahine, the lizard goddess, is home and that you're not supposed to go in there. But she said, you know, we weren't worried because, you know, no water, it's dry. But they come upon a circle of rocks that's got some river water in it. 
And they're looking around it like this, and they notice that around it are, are like, you know, golden necklaces, rings, earrings, pocket watches. And so Grandma Lucy says she and her friends and her sisters just start gathering all the stuff. And that boy Philip she had a crush on, he's like, no, 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 what are you doing? It's like, oh, you know, we can take this home to our mom and maybe, you know, pawn it for money. And Philip says, no. He's like, don't you know, this is, this is what belongs to all the people who drowned here. And some actually got, you know, sucked out into the ocean and they're probably stuck under some rocks. You're like, you don't take stuff that belongs to the dead. And so they didn't. And they decided to, to leave. And as they're walking up the bank of the dried river, uh, Grandma Lucy says, one of the girls in the group, she's like screaming bloody murder, like hysterical, just screaming. And they turn around and they said, in that circle of rocks with what was left of the river water is this tall, dark Hawaiian lady no clothes on, long hair, and she's pointing like this, but they don't know who she's pointing at. She's like, oh my God, oh my God. Turns out she's pointing at that guy, Philip. And so Grandma Lucy says her eyes became like cat eyes, like slits. And then first her, her tongue was red, and then it became black and scaly. And so they, they took off, and they knew who that was. That was the woman of that place. And she says later on, toward the end of the month, she finds out through the grapevine that when the river uh, came back that they found that boy Philip's body like further down the stream like toward the ocean and that his lips were, were swollen over like somebody was literally trying to suck something out of it and that there were claw marks all over him so they wasn't, weren't sure if it's because of his body how it hit the rocks or if something actually so as I'm having this op operation what I remember is being on the table spotlight right outside the perimeter of the spotlight like I said, I hear Grandma Lucy's voice, Scotty, and then the voice of that woman who was in the river that Grandma Lucy told me about. And they're all vying for, for who takes me. You know, and Scotty Boyd says, he's my friend, I'll take him, we can go play. And the Hawaiian woman's voice says, I will take him. He'll be mine. And then my Grandma Lucy says, no, no, he's mine. For life, I take him. And some unearthly voice says, for life then. But in Hawaiian, you know, it said, Nolaila Keola. It is life. And supposedly, according to the doctor, that's when I sort of came out of it. And so after that, nothing was ever the same. I began to see, hear, feel, all kinds of things. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine you had a brush with death at such an early age and communicating and kind of tapping into something that people spend their whole lives trying to do yeah. and, and find. Yet it, it hit you at such a young time in your life where you're still learning and growing. And wow, that's very powerful. I mean, a lot of people don't ever get that. Yeah. Well, that I knew, I knew there was going to be a good origin story. <laughs> um, but how about how you came to do what I know you as and met you through, and that's your tours and your ghost storytelling. I know, um, you know, I, I remember reading Glenn Grant's work very early on, right. uh, even before I'd, I'd learned about you. And my girlfriend is the one who said, oh, you know who Glenn Grant is? Well, here's Glenn Grant 2.0, <laughs> you know, the, the, the rebooted, the updated version. So, mm -hmm. yeah, can you give us maybe a little... Um, an idea of how that came to be. So I think in, I want to say 93, late 93, I was working at a hotel in Waikiki and the front desk people were talking about uh, this 
history for professor from the university who did a ghost tour in, in downtown Honolulu. And they're talking about all this, his stories and, you know, the fascination with it. And the following Wednesday, coincidentally, um, I remembered it, so I went on that tour. And the funny thing is, everything I heard him talk about was everything I'd basically learned growing up, uh, more so from my mom. And I thought, wow, how is that possible? You know, but he had, uh, he backed it up with, you know, historical references, documented accounts, photographs. And so I was fascinated. And the following Wednesday, uh, we're at hula practice. I, I was a hula dancer for my cousin, uh, Keone Nunes, and it was all, all male halal. And during one of the breaks, he says, oh, by the way, he says, you know, a, a, a friend of mine, my really good friend, uh, Glenn Grant, he does this ghost tour out to Waianae, so, you know, uh, we're going to be part of it. We're going to be the cultural part, and we'll present hula. And he said, it'll make sense because, you know, it, it coincides with the history of where we're going. And so that's how I got to meet him, because we did that part of the tour. And that went on for a while, and then one weekend, it was a Thursday that Keone called Glenn Grant at the last minute and said, you know, he can't do it. He's got to go to work in Washington, D.C. And Glenn says, well, I don't know you're part of the tour because I leave that up to you. He says, well, you know, uh, my cousin Lopaka and Kelly, you know, they, they come all the time, so he, he knows it. And so, you know, I just got thrown into the fire and Saturday came and I, I did my cousin's part of the tour. And I think it was uh, the following Monday or Tuesday, uh, he called me at home. He said, listen, um, you're pretty good. And he says, you know, don't say anything to your cousin, but, you know, um, <laughs> you know, would you mind if I, if I gave you some work here and there, you know, would you mind? I'm like, yes, sure. So he had me do things like um, when his history class was studying the, the Massey trial, he had me portray one of the detectives on the trial and speak in character. And so he'd do things like that. And then finally, uh, I guess he wanted to do more things or other things than just the ghost tour. And so that's how I ended up uh, becoming sort of like his apprentice to take over those, those ghost tours. And what was unique about his training is that there was no, no note-taking. I couldn't write anything down. You know, it had to be like from mouth to ear. Which again surprised me because that's how I learned everything from my mom. You know, the first the first night I sat down on the floor like right in front of her and I'm like, you know, pen and paper pad. She's like, what is that? I'm like, I'm going to take notes. She's like, no, put that away. <laughs> like, I talk, you listen. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, I, I'll interject here, that is the Hawaiian way of passing on history, right? That yeah. Before the westernization sort of began here, yeah. um, it was oral tradition right? yeah no written language and so the famous phrase is my kahana ke'ike you know from from watching you learn <clears throat> crazy yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine you know growing up like I had to write everything down um, yeah. well that that brings up a good point too is uh, the history of Hawaii is based solely on that oral tradition which these stories are a big part of but is that a lot of pressure for someone like you to have to remember names, dates, times, incidents, everything in between? Like, how does how do you go about doing that? You know, it's just a natural part of our life, and that's what we spent most of our time doing. My wife and I is, you know, just online researching documents, uh, buying tons and tons of books, uh, going through oral histories, and making sure we get the dates, the times, the names correct. And then 
I have to take all of that and put that together in a story, you know, so it all makes sense. And so no one in the audience thinks, well, that's just made up. Oh, wait, he said it happened in 1814. Okay, it must have happened. <laughs> and so I thought I was a stickler for, you know, for detail and, and the correct information. But uh, my wife, who does a lot of the research, she's like OCD about it. But, you know, it works in our favor. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so let's get to some of those stories. I know um, besides just your tours that you give, you, you've written a few books as well. And um, one of those involved Morgan's Corner, mm-hmm. a part of uh, the Poly Highway. Right. right. Am I correct? Um, and this, it's beautiful, but it's also very eerie to be in and look at. So... Would you mind giving us a little idea of um, the history of Morgan's Corner, what it means to you specifically? Well, the history of Morgan's Corner has to do with the history of the Morgan Estate, which was owned by um, Dr. James Morgan. Um, But because he lived on a corner at a hairpin turn, a lot of times there were accidents, so he'd have to go grab his bag and, you know, walk to the corner and help out. And uh, Mrs. Wilder also lived on the house on the opposite corner. And so when she was sick, he'd go over there and, you know, make sure she was fine. And that story is that, um, I believe it was in the 50s, that some robbers broke into Mrs. Wilder's house. And they tied her to the chair. And when they gagged her, I guess it was either too tight or too much uh, material in it. So she choked. And so these men were um, these men were sent to prison. And they were spared from hanging because right about that time is when they abolished death by hanging. And so they just lived most of their natural lives in jail. And somehow, and I'm not sure when it happened, but somehow Morgan's Corner became the place where if you parked your car late at night with your boyfriend or girlfriend, and if you waited, you'd hear tapping on the roof or scratching. And we know the famous story because there's one like that practically in every state boyfriend girlfriend doing homework uh, car won't start boyfriend says the classic words you stay here babe i'll be right back as she's waiting she hears it tap 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 and then long scratch across the roof as well and tap 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 and so it goes on all night and she falls asleep and when she wakes up in the morning it's a police officer knocking on the window and she rolls the window down and says, Officer, where's my boyfriend? And all, all he says is, Ma'am, come with me. Opens the car, helps her out like this, walks her to the squad car. And all the while she's saying, Officer, where's where's my boyfriend? Did he come back yet? And as he's about to put her in the backseat of his squad car, she just happens to turn around and she's losing her mind. Hysterical, bloody murder, screaming. Because there he is. There's a branch that was hanging over their car. His feet are tied to it. And his body swinging back and forth, fingernails scratching the roof. His throat from ear to ear dripping blood. Tap, tap, tap. In terms of um, Morgan's Corner on the Poly Highway, the Poly Highway itself has a very sordid history and um, a lot of stuff that goes along with that. Um, Would you mind touching on that? Not only is it a terrifying thing to drive on, I try to avoid it every time I'm here because I, I hate heights. Uh, but, yeah, could you give us maybe a little bit of your knowledge of the history of how the highway came to be and kind of what happened after it was built or oh. while it was being built? One of the um, the more recent famous stories is the Pali at the lookout is uh, where the conclusion of the Battle of Nu'uanu happened. 
and it's where Kamehameha the Great faced the combined forces of Maui and Oahu, uh, who were about 9,000. He came with a fleet about 20,000. And so by the time the battle concluded, um, people were just trying to get out of there, and there was a path going down this way. And I guess it was gridlock, so people began to accidentally push each other over the cliff. And then, of course, Kamehameha's warriors did the rest, you know, just pushed them right over. Um, there's that. And there's also this thing where you can't bring pork over the pali. And so the story goes that uh, the, the goddess Pele met this guy who her family told her was not the right guy, but she got involved with him anyway. And because of their their disagreements, they had a tempestuous relationship. She was unsuccessful at killing him. And so their deal was that he would stay on his side of the island, which is the windward side, and she'd stay on her side, which is the leeward side. And so, you know, the ancient TRO is that none shall cross into the other's path. And so this is why you're not supposed to bring any sort of pork from the windward to the leeward side through the polytunnel. But more specifically, that road at the lookout, that's where you can't bring it because you're breaking the pack. So in 1997, my late boss, Glenn Grant, uh, convinced a Japanese company. Uh, well, they convinced him to be their spokesman, but they specifically wanted to film the commercial at the lookout. And so they didn't really tell him what the product was, but when he's at the lookout and they're about to roll camera, the guy walks up to him with his big bag and takes out this slab of pork in a package and says, okay, you hold this up like this, and then you say uh, these words. And he looks at the script, he's like, I'm not saying that. He goes, oh, so much money, you know, you, you should say it. No, no, this is disrespectful. They asked him why. He said, the marker over there where you want me to stand, um, it's not good because I'll be still in Pele's territory holding up the slab of pork, and he explains the legend. And so they're arguing back and forth, you know, holds the pork, no, holds the pork, no. Finally, eyewitnesses say that this this wind, you can hear it howling, like it's it's waves crashing, crashing on the shore. You can hear it coming up the side of the poly. It comes over, it sweeps through the whole area, decimates everything. But when it gets to Glenn Grant, it just rips the slab of pork out of his hands. And everybody sees the slab of pork going like this. And it shatters the lens of the million-dollar high-definition camera. Just... <laughs> and the whole Japanese crew is like, Oh! <laughs> Man! Ah. The thing about the tunnel is when they were building it, um, the way the workers were situated on the top, there were some lava tubes uh, that they didn't know were there. So some of the men actually fell into the lava tube. And it was so deep and so tight, they couldn't get him out. So there's some uh, some workers entombed in the side of that uh, that tunnel at the pulley. Oh, wow. So tour bus drivers, everybody has said that during certain times of the year, they're coming out of the tunnel and there's some guy covered in red dirt like this, thumbing a ride. <laughs> like I said, if it weren't scary enough just driving on it because of the sheer height and steepness and you've got the you know the mist coming through it's stuff like that yeah. it just amplifies it you know just makes it worse <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the the other places that I love going when I come here is um, Kanyana Cave oh yeah on the west side right? yeah and um, and again 
you know, I, I post things on Instagram or Facebook or whatever as the tourist being like, this is the legend that happened here. And I'm always wrong. And thank God for someone like you who can tell me the actual legends and stories. So, um, Kanyana Cave, it's this deep black void in the middle of a mountain, mm-hmm. um, right across from the ocean. Beautiful, but it's got a pretty interesting history that's not so much beautiful, I would say. Would you mind running oh, yeah. us through that? Well, you know, um, during World War II, the, the Navy commissioned a few divers to go through Kanyana Cave you know, diving tank and whatever to find out where it comes out. And so the person told me that a lot of times it was really hairy because they would have to train themselves not to panic when they were in deep, dark spaces. But it basically came out on the windward side. Mm. And so I remember the gentleman telling me this this account because his father was one of those divers. He says, so, you know, what? what's the history of the cave? Because <laughs> he says, I, I was thinking about trying to do it myself. And so the story goes that the... Uh, the shark god Komoho Ali'i, who's the principal eldest brother of the goddess Pele, is swimming in his shark form uh, through that area. And when he looks at the beach, there's a beautiful woman. He falls in love with her, appears on shore as, you know, a tall, muscular man of some sort of, you know, high status. And he's walking around describing the, the woman he saw. And everyone says, oh, that's, that's Kale. And she lives over there. And so they meet, they fall in love, and they lay together, and they have a son. And at that point, Kamuhali'i tells Kale, I must now tell you that I am Kamuhali'i, the brother of Pele, the king of sharks. He said, I have to go back, but while I'm gone, as you raise this boy, you will call him Nanawe, and you will not feed him meat. I fear that if you do, he may begin to develop a taste for some other kind of flesh. And, you know, the woman says, okay. And so, in the culture, the boy stays in the women's house and eats with the women till he's about seven. And then they gird him with the, the loincloth, the malo. And then from then on, he stays uh, in the halemua, in the men's house, and learns everything from the men. And so, at that point, Nodnawe's grandfather begins to feed him meat. Because only men could eat meat. And one day at the beach, Kalei's sitting there, and she's watching her, you know, Nanawe just frolicking in the waves, and she sees something weird on his back, and she says, Oi! And he comes, and she turns him around, and there's a little indentation of a shark's mouth right in his back. And from then on, she has him wear, like, a shawl or some sort of cape. And so, as he grows up, uh, he's very competitive. But his mom tries to keep keep him at home, tending the garden in front of the, the grass hut. And some kids are walking by from another village, and he sees them, and he says, Where are you folks going? And the kids merrily say, We're going to the ocean. And then now he says, He says, Be careful. There might be sharks. Later on in the afternoon, same kids coming. There's one less. They're wailing and crying. And I guess Nanawe affects sympathy because he says, Oh, eh. What happened? The children say, Oh, eh. One of us has been eaten, finished by a shark. Ah, Nanawe says, Oh, eh. 
He said, I've told you before to be careful. <laughs> Cautionary tale. But one day he's in a serious digging contest and he's intent on winning and his shawl flies up over his head and everybody's horrified to see the gaping mouth of a shark. And so they beat him, they bound him, they tied him to a stake, took him up into the mountain and they were going to bake him alive in the underground oven. And at that point he calls for his father to come and save him and so this tidal wave appears out of nowhere, rushes up the valley, peels out the flames, grabs Nanawe back into the ocean and no one sees him after that and so this this story begins to circulate in the early 1900s about travelers walking by the cave late at night and when they peer in there's a fire and an old bent man with ratty white hair is tending it with a stick like this meat sizzling over the fire and he invites the traveler in and gives them their fill of meat and gives them ava to drink until they're drunk and then he changes into the shark, and he kills them, but he doesn't consume them. He lets the body lie there until it becomes putrid, and then he eats them. And so that's only one of a myriad of stories associated with that cave. <laughs> See, and if I had known that before I went in there, man, <laughs> it changed everything. But, but it's, it's so, ah, there's just something about it. Um, it draws you in. Yeah. Which is part of it, yeah. you know. You, you get this almost magnetic feeling of I want to go in and look deeper, and that's what they want. That's what he wants, yeah. you know. And that's why he dragged. People. It's just, uh. oh yeah. One of the most terrifying stories that I have heard coming out of Hawaii actually derives in Japan. And again, that's the beauty of this place is it is this supernatural melting pot of different folklore coming together almost like uh, smuggling certain supernatural phenomena into oh. another place it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And for me, it's the faceless woman. Oh, yeah. This just terrifies me. Um, faceless woman at the drive-in, I know, is one of the more popular ones. But yeah, what can you share with us about the stories of the faceless woman? We know the famous story from Japan on the Akasaka Path where the traveler sees a woman on the side of the road quiet, uh, crying pitifully. And when he goes to help her, she turns around and reveals she has no face. And then runs down the road and sees a soba stand on the side of the road and telling the proprietor about what happened. He says, oh, like this. And, you know, he has no face. The great thing about our, our melting pot culture is that, you know, a lot of people brought their religion, their food, which is what we're all about. But they also bought their ghosts. And so in 1959, I believe an article was posted in the newspaper. We say posted today. Uh, actually, it's published. Uh, about several reports regarding a woman with no face who's haunting the bathroom at the old YLI drive-in, which has since been demolished in 1994. And so everybody knows they went to that bathroom, they saw her in a white summer yukata, and she just pulled her hair back and revealed she had no face. And just everybody from housewives to longshoremen uh, to politicians... Uh, to people working in the Attorney General's office have all told me their own experience about this this no parable. So there's something to it. Especially when it comes from people who are not educated or designed to believe in this kind of thing. And they tell you the story and, you know, that their eyes are tearing up. So they saw something. Something happened. So my story is, uh, you know, I'm doing the Ghost Hunters bus tour and Glenn is, is doing his thing. Uh, Friday, Saturday nights, they had dinner and movie at the old store. And so we're at the Kahala Times, and I'm telling the faceless woman's story, and we're walking back to the, the bus. And an elderly Japanese woman, I saw her standing, like, you know, a little bit in the back of the group, and she had her blue, blue coiffed hair and wearing a bowling shirt and Bermuda shorts and these, these uh, Zori slippers. She's watching me like this, and she's going... And so as I'm walking to the bus, I see her walking up toward me. I'm like, good evening, you know, how are you? And she says, you know story is all wrong I said oh is it she said you yeah, a couple minutes I said yeah yeah but I gotta go if you can make it quick or we can meet somewhere else she goes no no I don't have time I said okay she proceeds to tell me that she and her friend who grew up together uh, their thing is little girls and you know teenage girls was their wedding how they were going to be dressed and you know she said oh I have a fancy kimono and everything and her friend says I only want a white summer yukata with embossed bamboo designs very simple and so they graduate high school. She doesn't hear from the friend. And suddenly she hears that the friend married some guy from Japan and that um, they had five kids and he died young, about late 20s. And after he died, uh, the friend realizes that this, this guy is from a well-to-do family in Japan, but he came here to make his own life, his own money. And so now she's left with all this inheritance. And hearing this story she's like wow oh she's doing good and then one day she's walking up Wailai Avenue and there's her friend across the street wearing a very nice kimono you know the, the collar down in the back and the obi and the slippers and she sees her friend and she walks across the street and goes up to her and says eh eh and the friend goes 
How are you? You're not hot. Wear that kind kimono in the middle of the day over here in Hawaii. No. Oh, why? Why you wear them like that? Because I can. And you know can. And walks off. Later on, she finds out that um, that friend of hers is supposed to distribute the money evenly amongst her kids, but she keeps it for herself. And so the kids are, they're just mad. They go to the family accountant and, you know, we want some of the money and then we're going to leave. We're going to move to the to California never come back. She's stingy. And they do exactly that. And the accountant takes the rest of the money. And so back then they had something called tanomoshi. It's where everybody contributed to this, this money pot. And then on credit, you could take whatever you needed. And so she was part of that group. And when she went and she showed up, everybody at the tanomoshi looked at her and said, Oh, you cannot be here. But why not? We heard about what happened with your husband and your kids and how you dishonor the name of your husband and your kids. And they told her, you have to leave. You have no honor. You have lost face. And no one sees her after that. And so this woman concludes by telling me that where the wildlife drive-in is now is where they had a house. And she said, one night down the road, they can hear someone crying pitifully. And she said, my husband, one Japanese guy, he's about six feet, three inches tall. Big. He jumps out of bed, put on his Bermuda shorts, his watercrest boots, and he's yelling, Orosai! And so I run after him. He's dragging me down the stairs, like holding his leg like this. He's like, let me go. I gotta go yell at that lady, tell her to shut up. She's waking up the whole neighborhood. And the woman says, no, no, you cannot. Why? Look, she is yokai. She's not human. And so up the road, they see a woman walking slowly like this in what looks like a white kimono, long black hair. And at the top of the street, she turns around and floats back down until she's right in front of the woman's house. And the woman said, And that yokai, look at me. It's my friend, the one I told you about. And she, she looked at me and she said, Let's go. Look, I am no longer human. I have lost face. So the lady says, right then, her friend, the face disappears. And it's just an orb of flesh. And so she says to me, You see why your story is wrong? It's nothing to do with the one from Japan. Everything to do with my friend. That's why she haunts the drive-in theater. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> is that, that I would assume the drive-in's gone. It's gone. Yeah. yeah. So there's like a public storage building. Okay. Which... It's just creepy. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Have you been in there? I haven't been in there, but I've heard all the stories about uh, them seeing shadows on the security camera, um, storage lockers that are secure, just flying open, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, speaking of, you know, the cultural supernatural melting pot, uh, the Philippines play another big role here as well. And mm-hmm. I remember going to an event of yours at the Honolulu Museum of Art, and uh, you telling the story about possessions. Mm. Now, this is a whole other level. I'm used to hearing about, you know, 
the possessions of the exorcist and these very Catholic or Christian versions of these stories, but um, do you have any cool stories about possession that you could share with us? Oh, yeah. There's one. Um, so I get a lot of phone calls for a lot of things, like how to put curse on someone. You know, I get that call, and I'm like, what are you calling me for? A curse? And it's always for, like, you know, petty reasons. And then, uh, a while ago, I got a call from a, a nice Hawaiian couple, and they claimed to me that their daughter was possessed. And I said, I'm not an exorcist, so I gave them a couple of phone numbers to people who were I thought were qualified. And so a few months later, they called me back, and they said, you know, we, we called the people, the, the number you gave us, but it turns out uh, an exorcism is a lot of red tape. There's a lot of channels they have to go through, and, you know, they were telling us actually has to go to the Pope before it's, uh, you know, approved. And over the phone, they said, and, you know, the, the priest, the, the numbers you gave us, those guys are just, they're mean. They're very mean, and they're supposed to believe in God. I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. They said, would you please just come to our house and just talk to our daughter? I'm like... I told you I'm not qualified to do an exorcism. And I said to them, and even if I was, I wasn't sure I, I would do it. They said, no, 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 just please. So I'm like, all right. You know, and I always regret it later. And so I get to the house. It's in a, the west side of the island called Kapule. And uh, newer developments. And nice, nice Hawaiian couple. And we meet in the kitchen because they let me in through the, the back door to the kitchen. And the story is when I get to the kitchen... Um, you can tell they're nervous and they point up the steps and there's the first landing and the steps go this way, the second landing, you know, and then the hallway. And so they point up the steps. They said, it's the first landing, that door right there to the left. Just knock on the door. You know, our, our daughter is in there. So I'm walking up the steps and I, and I turn around like, you guys aren't coming. So knock on the door, door opens, beautiful young Hawaiian girl, doesn't say hello plops herself on the bed and she's on the laptop like this and you know there's awkward silence and so finally I say um so your parents tell me that they think you're possessed and she's like yeah <laughs> so I'm like so why do they think you're possessed and she she's like this and she sits up and she goes and back on the laptop and so what she's showing me is that her entire room is decorated with everything Twilight from that movie. Wallpaper, uh, pillowcases, sheets, blankets. Uh, the wallpaper itself is colored in a, a deep violet color. And so I'm, I'm looking around. I'm like, are you serious? Your parents think you're possessed because of Twilight? And she's like this. She says, well, that and the other thing. I said, I don't mean to be maha'oi, to be nosy, but what's the other thing? And she says, I came out to them. I told them who I am. I'm a lesbian. And I have siblings who are, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender, and I just thought to myself, man, that sucks. And I looked at her, I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, that actually breaks my heart. So I took out a business card, put it on a table, like, right next to her door on the inside. I said, listen, anytime you want to talk about it, you, we can talk about this. It doesn't have to be what your parents are talking about. Um, my wife and I will come meet you, and you just say whatever you want. You know, we'll buy you dinner. And her demeanor changed, and she says, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I introduced myself. I said, hi. By the way, I'm Lopaka. And she says, I'm Sienna. I said, thank you, Sienna. And I went downstairs, and the parents are in the kitchen. They're like this. 
Did anything happen? Did she physically assault you? Did, did the room smell like sulfur? Were there things floating around? Did you hear voices? I said, no. I said, she's perfectly fine. Normal, everyday college girl. She's. You guys probably need to go get some family counseling or therapy. I mean, if you have a pastor or anything like that or somebody certified, uh, that wouldn't be my suggestion. And I, I told him, I said, Sienna's just this totally normal girl. At that point, the wife nudges the husband out of the way and she grabs me like this and she pulls me closer to her and her 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 demeanor is she's dead serious and she says no you don't understand the thing that's possessing our daughter is sienna her name is carolyn so i i've been on the island for a few months now i've seen a few full moons come and go and you know a lot of us when we think of full moons we think of werewolves but not here in hawaii full moons represent something completely different um something that is integral i think to the fabric of the islands and that's the night marchers mm -hmm. and i will tell you right now man there have been some nights where i where there's full moons were out and i thought i saw heard things but i i i don't know mm. i can't explain it but i'd love to hear could you tell us a little about the history of the night marchers and what they're said to do here in modern day yeah uh, the night marchers have particular moon phases um the four common ones are as the moon is going dark kane lono maoli muku and those are all different types of uh, night marcher processions and the way it works is that um, in our history, there were, there were chiefs, we call them ali'i, that were so high-ranking and so sacred that even when you were around them, you couldn't, you couldn't be clothed. If those high-ranking chiefs had kids, their kids could not eat from their same plate. And so when these, these high-ranking people went to go do number one and number two, it couldn't be buried in the earth. They'd had to put it in a, a bowl or a calabash of some kind and sail it out to like the horizon and then dump it for fear of sorcery and so when these people came out during the day everybody had to prostrate and lie face down hands behind the back of their neck like this and if the sun cast their shadow on your body you'd be killed um, if they happened to be wearing clothing that brushed up against you you'd be killed and so these high ranking people were merciful to the commoners and only came out at night and so their warrior procession walks in front of them and sounds the conch shells, sounds the drums, uh, carry very red, bright torch lights so you can see them coming along the mountain ridge. And so when all of that is happening, that's sort of their warning to you that, hey, we're coming this way, so don't be here. And sometimes today, uh, people don't see all of that. And there are a lot of stories where a night march or procession comes upon a bunch of people like at the last minute, like right on top of them. And so that's basically what it is now. They're doing the same job they did when they were alive, taking the same path. And so sitting here in Kapilani Park, uh, we are very near one of the more active night marcher processions that comes right here and goes to, to the private girls' school right back there. <clears throat> yeah, I remember going on one of your tours down towards Waikiki and uh, walking and then learning we were in the actual path of what the night marchers probably went through. And that, again, was a moment where I just, like, <laughs> I got chills, like, thinking, wow, 
this could have been the very place where that happened. It's yeah. just incredible. It's incredible. I was wondering if you could tell us maybe the story about Peter Gregory. Oh, no, hold on. Yeah. If you're willing to do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so why are child ghosts unique, and uh, oh. what happened to young Peter Gregory? Child ghosts are unique um, in the way that they, they passed, because uh, in our history, um, between 1853 and 1854, we had a smallpox epidemic. And it wiped out thousands of people. A lot of them are kids. And you, you can just imagine the suffering of, of those little... <sighs> not being able to understand why. And questioning, why is this happening? You know, mom, dad, what did I do? And a lot of times when they finally leave, you know, that's the most prevalent thought on their mind. And that's basically what keeps them around after the, the bodies passed away. And so at Kwaihao Church, uh, there, there are a lot of graves of children who didn't survive past, you know, 9, 10 years old. And their pictures are on, are on, are on these, these porcelain things on the headstone, you know, and their eyes are just so, so soulful, soulful and, you know, and so the story goes that at the church every Christmas, uh, the old Hawaiian ladies... During that week of Christmas, they take presents to all the graves where all the children are buried and, you know, decorate them with Christmas lights and little Christmas trees and small presents. And the security guard who told me this story said he was the one that would always help them every Christmas. Just bring a wagon or hold the presents. All the whole Hawaiian ladies would decorate the grave. And so near near the preschool building, the adobe building, is where Peter Gregory Nahola is buried. And his headstone is right up against this uh, golden shower tree. And when I taught there, we you know the kids would love to sit around his grave and, you know, they would talk to him. And so he only lived to be nine years old. And so on that night, the security guard tells the ladies, he says, uh, listen, I, I just took a, a, a job with the government. So um, this is my last night. The new security guard will be here tomorrow night and just introduce yourselves to him. And so that's what happens. The next night, the ladies putting the presents on Peter's grave and here comes the new security guard oh aloha how are you you were the ladies from the church and this is what we do every Christmas and the security guard says you you and you get the F out of here right now and they're stunned they're like what he says yeah just I don't care about your stupid tradition just get the F out of here and they're like they're stunned they don't understand and to emphasize his point he kicks one of the presents and it spins furiously and one of the sharp corners of the presents uh, catches one of the old Hawaiian ladies like right here and now they're swearing at him in Hawaiian and probably cursing him and so when they leave that security guard goes showed them when he comes back for his second round three o'clock in the morning and he comes upon Peter's grave and the decorations are gone he chuckles again to himself yeah I showed them he turns around and walks away and as he turns to walk he stops like this because this little Hawaiian boy with his hands on the man's hips is looking up at him and saying, Why, mister? Why did you do that? The security guard looks down at the little boy and says, What do you mean, why? And when he turns back around to go the other way, that same boy is right there. Why, mister? Why? The security guard thought he would be funny and, you know, flood that, that kid's eyes with his flashlight, but when he did that, the kid wasn't there. But the flashlight beam shines on Peter's picture on the headstone and he realizes this is the same kid 
And he says, after 17 years of being in the military and not fearing any man, here's something that he couldn't handle himself, like physically grab it. And he was struck with fear. And so he began to run. And he said, this black tornado whirlwind thing chased him across the graveyard. And he said, in it were, were all the voices of the kids going, why, mister, why, why? And he said, I know it was small headstones or whatever it had to be, but it felt like little hands grabbing onto my shoes and my socks and my ankles. And finally, when he got to the, uh, the other end of the cemetery, he's all beat up, his clothes are torn, and he falls into this fetal position and says, no, leave me alone. And this flashlight shines on him and he looks up and it's a police officer who says, are you okay? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. You know, the people who live across the street here at the Elder Hostel, they're complaining about children screaming in the graveyard. Have you seen any kids? Security guard says, no, no, I, I haven't seen any kids. And the officer looks him up and down with the flashlight and says, what happened to you? When the ambulance comes and the security guard is sitting in the ambulance, and he finally explains to the police officer what happened. The officer looks at him and says, you idiot. You never go to a Hawaiian church and piss off the old Hawaiian ladies. They'll put a curse on you. He said, but for the graves of children, you never desecrate them. Ever. That's just stupid. Good for you. This story is told to me by that same security guard who was a jerk that night. The surprise for the old Hawaiian ladies is the following day when they come to Peter's grave to secretly decorate it, there's already presents there. And there's one card on it that simply says, so you never have to ask why. The name of the security guard is on it. I, my first time meeting you in person was at one of your tours down in Honolulu, and we went to Iolani Palace, probably mm -hmm. one of the most visited places on the island. And uh, we had an amazing tour, my partner and her mother and I, and I remember distinctly when we walked up to the palace, I knew nothing about it. I didn't know the history. And you began singing Aloha Oi. And it stopped me in my tracks. It was beautiful, first of all. But while you were singing it, I looked up into one of the windows of the palace. Distinctly, I remember up in a corner and I saw what I believe was a figure. Someone looking from a curtain, closing it, and walking away. And it kind of gave me chills, but I mean, I didn't want to interrupt you or doing um, prayer. And uh, it wasn't until after that you told me that that was the exact room that the queen stayed in. Yeah. And I was speechless after that. I think for the rest of the tour that night, I was very quiet, which I didn't want to be because I had so many questions for you. It was my first time meeting you, but I was just like, something hit me in that moment. Hmm. And I didn't realize that that was where the queen actually stayed in the palace. Yeah. Um, would you mind giving us a little history about the queen and why she was in that room specifically? And uh, <laughs> did I... Did I see the queen? I mean, what? what, what I, I know you can't answer that 100% um, proof positive, but mm -hmm. yeah, could you give us a little history about that? Yeah, so she was definitely a woman before her, her time, and she, as she writes it in her diary, became queen against her will, because when it was offered to her, she didn't want to do it. 
Um, and that's because her brother, who was the king before her, uh, came back from San Francisco on the USS Charleston. And two blocks away from the palace was the port. Now it's all landfill. And so when the, the ship arrived, his, his body was in a casket. And so you can imagine the shock. And so when everybody realized that, um, the businessmen who were the ones that were going to overthrow her and accuse her of treason told her, you have to take the throne right now. She, and she took it. And so when she uh, designed her constitution, these American businessmen didn't like it because she was going to allow things that they didn't think uh, would would benefit them. And she was going to allow, I believe, she was going to allow women to vote and all citizens of the kingdom to vote. And so the short story is uh, there were revolutionists who had a cache of weapons that belonged on the other side of the island, but somehow it mysteriously appeared in her garden and she was accused of treason. And so, short story again, rather than see these Hawaiians lose their lives, she abdicated the throne on the condition that the circumstances surrounding her, uh, her being overthrown would be investigated and that the findings would be in her favor, that she did nothing wrong. But it didn't happen that way. And so while she was in prison, she was in that room on the second floor up in the corner. And she had a bed, she had water, uh, bread, and she was only allowed to go out at night, but escorted by a guard. And so you can imagine the humiliation of now being a prisoner in your own palace. You know. And so a lot of people have felt her, have heard her, and even more people have seen her. While they're in that room, or sometimes when they're just walking by and they look up and, you know, there she is. But the song I sang that night was the song that she composed while she was in there, while she was in prison. I definitely think I experienced something. Yeah. And well, I hope I did. I know you did. You probably did see her. I'll tell you that. But for me, when I go up in that room to the imprisonment chamber and I see the quilt that she made herself while she was in prison, I'm done. I can't be in there. Yeah. You know, I just have a hard time. I can look at it for a second and then I have to leave. You know. Storytelling, ghost stories in particular, it's not just about scaring people hmm. that's a big aspect of it um it's enticing it's it's fun but why do you do what you do is, is there some overall goal or some meaning to it that you try to bring through telling these ghost stories you know it sounds strange because you know i am known for telling ghost stories but my goal is to change people's lives in a way that they when they leave the storytelling event, it sort of makes them pause and start to re-examine, wow, you know, if I'd have done this or said this to this person, would they not have ended up like the ghost in that story? Yeah. You know, and just just people take a look at themselves and just say, you know, I should start treating my son a lot better so he doesn't end up like that kid. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I've always looked at ghost storytelling as cautionary tale. Yeah. I've, I've said that a few times tonight, but I think you're right. It... it when you can put yourself into that situation, um, you have to learn something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and also to make people look at their mortality. Wow. What am I going to do while I'm still here? <laughs> yeah. You know, so that doesn't happen to me. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, the beauty of that, of ghost storytelling or looking into the paranormal or the supernatural, we can all find something in common in such a divisive time in our history right now. We are, we're all going to die. Yeah. 
you know, and we have to face that and embrace that and know, hopefully, that it's just kind of the beginning, I would think. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, death has to happen so life can begin anew. While you're alive, while you're still here, make it a point, your family, your friends, make it a point to tell them how much you love them. It's important because don't wait until you're on your deathbed to do it. Do it now. Details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 